0: So thank you for coming uh, back tonight, and uh, we're going to have Nathan come on up. Nathan Rittenhouse from RZIM, and I have four more questions for Nathan. Uh, We asked him four questions last night, so I have four more. He does not know what these questions are ahead of time. So um, question number one, Nathan, what is your least favorite vegetable? Kohlrabi.
1: I don't know that I've ever had it, but I'm assuming I don't like it.
0: <laughs> I don't even think I've ever heard of it. No, I don't know what that is. Okay. Has anyone eaten kohlrabi? Uh, look, oh, look at this. Yeah. I
1: think the problem is the one that I did have was, was too big. so It was a little, oh. a little
0: starchy. I have, I'll, have to, I'll have to Google that because I have no idea what that is. It would make, um, it's, it, the reason... Veggie doesn't have one,
1: so that's part yeah, of the Yeah, that's most probably why don't I don't know either. Yeah. Okay,
0: all right. Um, what is your favorite Old Testament book of the Bible and why? Oh, um, I often like to say judges just to unsettle people. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> yeah. No, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, well, kind of different categories there. Um, I think as I get older, the Psalms make more sense to me. Um on the other hand, I think the, some of the minor pro- like the book of Hosea, hmm. that really, uh, and some of the minor prophets that really give us a kind of God's perspective of some of the historical things that happened are things that um, captivate me uh, at this phase of my life.
0: All right. Okay. Um, tell us a little bit, this isn't really a question, but tell us a little bit about your podcast. I'd like people to oh, know sure. a little bit more about your podcast. Yeah, so the podcast that I do with my friend Cameron
1: McAllister is called Thinking Out Loud. It's thinking out loud about current events and Christian hope. And the reason for that name and the reason we started the podcast is there are quite a few Christian podcasts or Christian commentary uh, on the news. Some of those get a little bit heavy at times, a little bit the sky is falling there. Uh, And so we wanted to bring a sort of younger think about what does it look like to think about the future of the church and the hope that we have and how that hope that we have in Christ uh, modifies the way in which we see the things happening in culture. And so it's something where what we're really trying to do is help Christians see how they have the tools and the resources from within their Christian faith to really thoughtfully engage um, the things that are happening around them, uh, dinnertime conversations with their family, things in the workplace, or maybe even things they see on social media to engage those thoughtfully and say, you know what, as a Christian, I do have something to contribute to that. So uh, we have a lot of fun doing it, and, mm-hmm. um, so,
0: but, uh, and people enjoy listening to it also. So it's, it's great, um, great fun for us. It's really good listening. So it's thinking out loud. You can get it at all the different places you get you get podcasts and you said perhaps it's going to be weekly? That's I think yeah, up? that's the trajectory Sorry. here hopefully by the end of the month
1: it'll then it used to be bi-weekly but yeah. I think
0: we're going to all right, speed it up a little. That's great. All right, last question. If the Dallas Cowboys were playing the <laughs> Pittsburgh Steelers and you had no, I'm just kidding. That's not that's not the question. So, last last night you shared about the tragic bicycle accident mm. that you that you had. And um, I was wondering if you could speak to whether or not that accident and the recovery process sort of changed you in any significant way? And if so, what? that was about 10 years ago. Yeah, you said. that's right. Mm-hmm. You know, did, it, did, it, did it change you? And sometimes we talk about those kinds of things when they happen, you know, people say, oh, this changed my life, or "I changed the way I think about things. I was just curious if that yeah. changed you in any way. Um,
1: I have some physiological things still left over in the way that my mouth works and things like that. There's that change, but I think I... It was a time of really appreciating the, the Christian community that I had around me. And even though I was uh, living away from home, just the number of different people from different churches that reached out and um, cared and supported for my wife and I, it was uh, kind of over our first anniversary. Mm-hmm. And so we uh, said, we, hopefully that's the for worse. You know, for better or for worse, hopefully we got that out of the way early on. Um, And so I think it was a a real time of of growth for us as a couple, and then also just recognizing our dependency on the community around us to help us care for some of those things, getting started um, financially and uh, food and otherwise. Mm -hmm. Um, Just some real ways in which people practically blessed us in a time of, um, yeah, real pain.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Great. Well, thank you very much. You bet. Please share the word with us.
1: <laughs> well, it's great to be back here with you again this evening. And um, hopefully the, the Lord has something in store for us here as we continue to think about why Christianity matters. And the topic for this evening is why Christianity matters, what Jesus said in God's original intent. And when I was two years old, I had an imaginary friend named Theodore. And I don't remember this, but I would tell my mom about that, and she could re- later relay that to me in life. And Theodore My imaginary friend lived across an imaginary bridge, and I would go visit Theodore for extended periods of time, and then I would come back, and and that's all fine and good, and it's fairly normal, I think, for children to have imaginary friends. But where it got interesting is when we started having conversations in my family as uh, maybe my mom was giving me a scoop of ice cream, and I would say, well, can I have two scoops of ice cream? And my mom would say, no, you can only have one scoop of ice cream. And I would say, well, Theodore's mother lets him have two scoops of ice cream. And I very quickly learned that the conventional morality of your imaginary friend's mother um, doesn't really carry that much weight (laughs) in an argument with your own actual mother. Um, And so there's I early on started learning about ethical systems and frameworks and how we decide what is true and what actually works in an argument. And then when I was uh, later on in college, I was taking this professional ethics class that was famous for the fact that you couldn't get an A in it. And I, I looked at the fine print in the syllabus, and it said if you are part of a, of a team that makes it to the Collegiate State Ethics Bowl competition, you get an automatic 95 on the final exam. And I thought, you know what? I, I bet I can pull this off. So um, I had a roommate that I loved to argue with, uh, and that was a lot of fun. And I was like, I need two other guys. So I went and found some pre law guys, and I said, hey, you guys like to argue? And they said, no, we don't. And I said, you proved my point. Perfect. Uh, you're on my team. And uh, we made it to the, the state ethics bowl uh, competition. And uh, you're studying all these ethical theories. And we got there. And the state ethics bowl competition um, was on ethics and journalism. And they had journalists being the judges, uh, which was I didn't think was ethical. And the, <laughs> um, and the, and the whole thing was sponsored by Philip Morris. I was like, well, that's fascinating. We have a tobacco company who's never done anything unethical sponsoring our um, ethics bowl. And so <laughs> kind of came out of that experience a little disillusioned about the formal ethical systems. Um, most of the time, we probably don't think if somebody came up to you and said, you know, what's your ethics philosophy, we wouldn't be able to rattle off or spool off the system that we typically use. And throughout history, there have been all types of certain uh, different systems. Um, there, the kind of Kant and his deontological duty ethics, if you have certain duties to state, family, certain things, you act out of a, a duty or a compulsion in that way. Maybe contractarian ethics, you signed your name on the contract, and by writing out contracts, we can kind of figure out what the boundaries of our behavior would be. Um, virtue ethics is one that I think has some merit, goes way back even to the Greeks of saying, we're making decisions that are in keeping with the growth of the type of person that we want to become. Probably the, the most used is utilitarianism, Uh, And that one um, is basically that idea of you're doing a kind of a moral calculus of saying, I'm making the action that has the benefit to the most people. And that probably in the subconscious psyche of Americans (laughs) these days is the way that we make, um, probably specifically in a democracy of saying that um, we're going to go with kind of what the majority of people think is the best thing to do and the thing that has the best outcome for the most people. Now, all of those systems of thought have fairly serious flaws in them when you start you know, uh, pushing back into them. And you can find kind of atrocious examples in history of, oh, we're going to do what the most of us think is best. Uh, that has not panned out well in, in different countries and times. And, or there's egoism, I'm just going to do what's good for me and let the consequences uh, fall as they may. That usually doesn't last too long, either, because people tend to not like you anymore. Um, And so as you think through these and you study through these, when you look then broadly across history, most of what people have landed on is something that's in the category of ethics that um, would sort of as an umbrella group be referred to as divine command theories. So divine command theories are saying, well, our theory, our, our ethical systems are given to us by something divine, something that transcends us. And on the surface level, that sounds good, right? Something bigger than us would have a bigger perspective of reality and teach us how we ought to be able to do that. And so divine command theories in multiple cultures and multiple religious systems have some sort of divine command theory um, to them. Now, all the way back to the time of Socrates, um, there's a, a famous um, little story of a man named Euthyphro. And it's become known as Euthythro's Dilemma, this story. And in this story, this young man named Euthythro is on his way to court to turn his dad in because his dad beat one of the family slaves and the slave died. And so Euthythro is going to turn his dad in for the murder of this slave. And along the way, um, Socrates is sitting there and engages him in, in his typical fashion, starts asking him all these questions about what is, what is pious, what is right, what is good, how are you determining that this is good or bad? And they get into this conversation And at some point, Euthyphro says, well, it has something to do with the gods. That's how we define what is good. And then Socrates asked him this question. He said, is something good because the gods say that it is good? Or do the gods say in keeping with something that is good? So is there a form of goodness that the gods are commanding based off of? Or are the gods just commanding it based off of however they feel? So is, it, is there goodness, and then the gods command based off of that goodness, or is it good because the gods command it to be good? You see the two different things going there. And so he's saying fundamentally there's, a, there's an issue with saying that there's a divine command theory in some sense, because where is the definition of goodness rooted? Is it in the will of the gods, or is it in something that actually exists above the gods, and the gods are playing by that set of rules? And so that's been seen as a flaw in the concept of divine command theories, of saying, well, it still really doesn't give us something to ground our ethics in. And by ground our ethics and our ground our morality, I mean, like, what's the foundation? What, what can we keep? What can you, uh, what's the kind of the original starting point of this system of belief? And so that's Euthyphro's dilemma. Is it good because the gods command it, or do the gods command it because it's good? And that has gone on for thousands of years. We still read about that in philosophy classes. But the Christian. Re- Uh, response to that has classically been, and I think this is true, is to say, you know what, that's a false dilemma. From a Christian perspective, certainly there isn't a category of good that transcends God. There's not a a list of (laughs) a set of rules that God has to play by. Um, There's nothing that is superior to him. And on the other hand, God just doesn't randomly make up rules and laws for us to do. Now, in some monotheistic religions, you have that It's the will of Allah, right? For example, he can decide whatever he wants to do, and there's not an inherent consistency to his character in his revelation in that sense. So whatever he decides is good for that time is good for that time, Um, and it's not based on any intrinsic quality within him. But Christians have said it's a false dilemma. There's nothing above God that he's playing by, and he's not just randomly making things up. Rather, God commands what is good based off of his character and his nature. He, it's based off of his character and his nature. Now, the reason that that gets interesting then is to say, okay, how then do we see that play out? And Is that true scripturally speaking? Or What gives us an indication of that? But the claim there is that the, the way that God is provides the foundation for the way that we ought to be. And that's a classical David Hume, the atheist, said that's the hardest problem in philosophy is how do you get from an is to an ought? How do you get from, well, this is what it is to this is what it ought to be type movement? And Christians are saying, look, it's the character of God. It's the way that he is that provides the foundation for the way that we ought to be. So it kind of gets weird. It doesn't really work because we don't have the words for it. But you could say that the divine isness, the isness of God is the foundation for the oughtness of humanity. The way that God is and his moral behavior and character is the way that we ought to be. And I think I figured it out. If you wanted to complicate that and say it grammatically, you could say that the divine indicative is the predicate of the human imperative. Somebody can fact check me on that. But I think that's the... If you wanted to write that in a way to confuse the most people, that would be how you do it. Um, But that idea that the way that God is provides a foundation for our oughtness is, I think, um, apparent to us as we read through the Bible and you have statements like this where God says, be holy because I am holy, right? Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Forgive, as I have forgiven you. And so we see what it is that God asks of us is something that God Himself does. It's not something new that He's making up. It's the way that He is, He's illustrating that for us. And so it was the old mystic Meister Eckhart who said, Jesus didn't come into the world and look around and say, Oh wow, the Jews have six hundred and thirteen laws, and let me add a couple more to that, and then Christians can outdo the Jew because we'll have a few more things to do, and then we'll be superior. He said, no, rather what's happening there is God makes his character known in the world through the person of Jesus Christ, and then Jesus gives us a way of living and teaches us to go the second mile because we serve a God who has gone the second mile, and teaches us to love our enemies because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so the things that Christ reveals for us to do are based off of the character and the nature of the way that God is. It's not just a random thing that God is making up and it's certainly not something that he has to abide by but he is making commands for humanity based off of the way that he actually is. Now, there are some constraints and I think it's important to recognize here that we would say and remember there are things that God cannot do which kind of sounds weird coming out of your mouth but God cannot lie, God cannot deny himself these are all scriptural truths of logical things and so we're saying well is God freely doing those and I think that Ultimate freedom is when you're bound only by your own character. There's no set of constraints outside of God that he has to play by, but because of the continuity and the consistency of who it is that he is, those things don't change. Now, the application of some of those change, obviously, between the Old and the New Testament, but the same thing and the same ideas are consistent throughout both the Old and the New Testament that the way in which we should behave is based off of the way that God is. And so that's a question you say, okay, well, that sounds good at a philosophical level, but then how do we practically know as Christian people what that means? What then is the character of God? That becomes the operative question for figuring out how it is that we ought to live our lives. And that's where we as Christians then start pointing at passages like Colossians 1 and John 1 and Hebrews 1 and Philippians 2 that talk about Jesus being the image of the invisible God. God was pleased to have his fullness dwell within him. That when we're curious about what God is like, That as New Testament Christians, we believe that we look at the life of Jesus and that shows us the character and the nature of who God is. If you want to know what God is like, we look to the person of Jesus. And so when Jesus shows up and teaches us to do things, the question then we have to ask ourselves is, is that a divine command when Jesus teaches? Is that a reflection of the heart of God that he expects us to be able to actually live that out? And so things like the Sermon on the Mount, extremely tough teachings, extremely difficult teachings. When Jesus comes and he doesn't negate the law, he fulfills the law. He kind of like takes the bar from here to like here. Have you ever noticed that? He doesn't negate the law. He intensifies it. You know, you know don't murder. Well, that's fairly easy. Well, don't hate. You know, that starts to, starts to get a little more difficult. Because so he, he's, he's reflecting to us the, the original intent that God had for the human heart and our interaction with himself and with each other and with the world around us. And so Jesus is teaching those things, and to get ourselves out of that difficulty, there have been a couple of creative ways of saying, well, you know what, the, Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, that's not really uh, teaching that you're actually supposed to do, that's just to show you how miserable you are and that you need the grace of God. Well, part of that is true, it does teach us that, but it could be that there's more to it than that. Or you could kind of manipulate that into a theological system and say, well, you know what, the kingdom of God, that's not until Jesus returns. You don't have to look at the Sermon on the Mount as the actual teachings of Jesus for now. That's when Jesus comes back, then the Sermon on the Mount. And a significant percentage of American Christians operate in that system that the teachings of Jesus don't apply till now. They apply to the kingdom, which isn't yet. It's in the distant future. But the denominational heritage that you have here has always been very unsettled with both of those of saying, what if Jesus actually meant the things that he said? And when he said, come follow me, it wasn't just a random willy-nilly kind of fun idea that he had, but he actually had real things for us to do. That starts to get heavy um, in a good way. It starts to challenge us to think through what is it exactly that we're supposed to do. And what I think we quickly find out that when we, if we embrace this idea that when Jesus says, come follow me, that that actually meant something for us to do, we quickly realize we're not going to be able to do that on our own. I've never met anybody who on their own willpower could pull off a thousandth of the thing that Jesus says this is the vision for reflecting the character of God in reality. And so I think when we read scripture, if we're reading it well, in each passage we should get to the point where we say, dear God, help us. And that's about the point where we're really starting to get it. And that's why it's so significant, I think, that Jesus promises and says it's better for, that I go to the Father because then I will send you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will teach and guide and comfort and challenge. Um, And so the role of God then in the formation of the Christian life becomes an epic thing. You have to have a deep theology and understanding of the Holy Spirit in order to be able to pull off a Christian ethic in this world. You will not be able to bootstrap yourself into anything that remotely looks like the life of Jesus. That, for me, is probably one of the most powerful, motivating things of making me fascinated about the Christian life, is watching Christian people interact with people that they should not have liked, even people who disliked them and having the total capacity. I knew there was something within them that I did not have that enabled them to treat other humans in that way. There was something that I was missing. And that's sort of been the, I think, for the history of the Church of the Brethren and a lot of times for the Mennonites too, a difficult thing to try to balance out this idea of Jesus's discipleship, of a a Christian community that you choose to join and be part of, kind of that famous Harold Bender Anabaptist vision idea. And then there was a critique of that years later by a man named Steve Deniman, and I think he was right where he talked about the spiritual poverty of the Anabaptist vision, because he said, if we're not careful, if we're going pure Anabaptist here, then we're trying to say, well, we're going to do the works that Jesus calls us to do with a fundamental misunderstanding of the realities of the human heart and how you need to be saved and redeemed and filled with the Spirit in order to be able to pull that off. And I think Bender understood that, but that part can get left out. And so there's a deep social impact and gospel and justice that goes with the teachings of Jesus. But if you disconnect that from the fundamental roots of the salvation message that Jesus proclaimed, all of this is just hot air. It's not connected to anything, and you're not going to be able to pull it off without the power of God working in and through you. And so as people who focus a lot on who Jesus is, we have to embrace the full Trinitarian nature of who God is and a fullness of an understanding of what it is that the Holy Spirit intends to do and work in our lives in order to make us conform to the image of the Son in a way that that is actually possible. You are not big enough, you're not strong enough, you're not good enough, your church doesn't have enough programs to help you naturally respond in the way of Christ. This is a deep, heartfelt shift in the core of who you are that would enable you to work and act this way. Now, sometimes it's easy to do the right thing or act like Jesus, if we have time to think about it. I think the times in which we get to see the true ourselves is when we're under pressure or something happens subtly, to see what our reflexes is, what are our postures in those moments and in those situations, that's where the true us really comes out. My grandfather used to visit a guy in prison who had been uh, trained in hand-to-hand combat and several tours, and that was his thing. And he was coming out of a bar one night, and some guys jumped him from behind, and he turned around and killed him. Um... Not because that was necessarily what he wanted to do, but that was the reflex of his body. That was what he was trained to do. When somebody grabs you from behind in the dark, this is the move. And his body naturally did that. And I wonder if there isn't a vision of discipleship here that God has for us, is what would it take for God to work in your life in such a way that your reflex is Christ-like? I don't think that's a theory. I think that's a real thing that we're really called to. Now, this is not a statement of perfection by any stretch of imagination, but there's a reality there to us being God's witnesses and ambassadors, giving us a ministry of reconciliation, of living a life. And again, this is not about humans being able to do this. This is about the power of God working through people. And that goes back to what I was saying the other night about the amazing thing that happens when Jesus does the miracle and God gets the credit for it, right? It's because I think there's a way in which when we're living Christ-like lives, people who know me well would say, wow, there is a good God, because I know that scruffy-headed dude isn't able to pull that off on his own. You know, um, uh, a sense in which it's channeled. It's not about our greatness. It's about the goodness of who God is. And so I think the brethren have always wrestled with and struggled with getting that right theological boundary of how do we... um, It is true that the heart of what it means to be brethren is to figure out what Jesus said when he what Jesus meant when he said, come follow me. That's a real invitation to discipleship. But also to f- pull on, pour on then the fullness of the heart of everything there, that is there, that is the grace of God that points us in the right direction and fills us and enables us to do that. And so there's a created order in a way that God has planned for us to work within that. And we're not fully redeemed. We're looking forward. Creation groans with eager anticipation for the redemption of the sons of men. There is a, uh, a future that will... Um, I'm not delusional about the chaos and the brokenness of the world around me in my own heart, family, church, neighborhood. That is all a reality. It takes that seriously. But I am called to live my life pointing in a trajectory and pointing in a direction of hope of what it is that God will finally and ultimately do. And casting that vision in a way that inspires other people to be interested and in longing for the fullness of what it is that God will bring into fruition. The neat thing about that is then when we start to put the content of our lives into that um, posture is that it starts to recalculate our ethics in a fascinating way because so much of our ethical decision-making is based around death being the worst possible thing that could happen to me. And if we get anything from the life and teaching of Jesus is that the best thing that you might do sometime is die for somebody else. But that's counterintuitive because we live in a culture that's like preserve myself and my family by all possible means. And we have this fear of death. We use death as an end game in a way that um, sort of negates what Jesus was actually teaching. And we'll talk about this a little bit more when we think about the power of the resurrection, but um, you should never get your theology from a joke. Probably that's a fairly safe universal statement. I I like the one about the uh, guy who... um, you know, shows up at the pearly gates. St. Peter's there, which is not true. It's just, you know, the joke format, right? And um, he gets there, and St. Peter says to him, well, you know, why should I let you in? What good thing have you ever done? Which is, again, terrible theology. That's not how that works. And the guy says, well, um, uh, well, one time I was walking down the street, and there was this little old lady and a, a gang of Harley riders drove up, and they jumped off their motorcycles, and they ran over, and they took her purse, and they pushed her down. And St. Peter said, Okay, what'd you do? And he's like, I found the biggest, meanest, ugliest-looking one of them, and I walked over and I kicked his Harley over. And St. Peter said, I don't remember this. When did this happen? He said, oh, like 45 seconds ago. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Um. But there is a... there's so much wrong with that joke in so many levels. But I think there is a little bit of a funny element there that Christians have successfully lived with powerful lives of witness in the past when they were serious about what Jesus meant about conquering death. And when you subtract the fear of death out of your moral calculations, that opens you up for some very fascinating expressions of your faith. Now, I'm not saying go willfully make a martyr out of yourself, But it is interesting for us as Christian people to hold that in the back of our mind and say, are we actually living our lives like we believe that death is the enemy that has been conquered by God? How does that change my ethical behavior and my framework and the way that I think about making those decisions? And um, a year or two ago, Grove City College invited me on Valentine's Day. This is a super romantic topic. There's a theme here of me showing up at... Supposed to be romantic times and not being romantic at all. Um, Valentine's Day, they invited me to come speak on "Can we, um, can we love like Jesus and maintain our safety?" How's that for a Valentine's Day topic? And again, I gave a talk that you will never find in a Hallmark card. Um, but the, it was a great question. And as we look through it, particularly through the lens of the, the story of the Good Samaritan and how there are two pairs there, you have the Levite and the priest and going by, and then there's another pair where he says, and in the same way, then the Levite came, and he says, and the Samaritan did this, and which one did it? And then it said, in the same way, likewise, you. And so we're looking for the second pair. There's the priest and the Levite who didn't do the right thing, and there's the Samaritan, and who else? Who else is going to do the right thing in that situation? He's looking for the second pair. The completion of that second couplet there of who's going to be on the Samaritan's team. You have the priest and the Levite, you have the Samaritan, the good Samaritan and who? Is it going to be you? Are you going to be the person who does that? And what we see time and time again in the life of Jesus that is so challenging and convicting to me is that Jesus consistently prioritizes hospitality over security and service over comfort. Jesus prioritizes hospitality over security, and service over comfort. Man, that is a radical way of living in our world, which I think is probably pretty much the American dream. Security and comfort would be up there uh, on the chart. And Jesus is just saying that is not the highest goal. That is not the way that we live that appropriately reflects the character and the nature of who God is. I like this idea um, and the stories that we tell each other, I think, of our past and of people who have lived as faithful Christian lives in our communities are so important because it gives us real ideas to this. Some of you will be familiar, I don't don't remember all the stories, um, all the details of the story of during the Revolutionary War, the two uh, British soldiers that were caught out in a snowstorm and they stopped by the farm of two brethren uh, families farther east of here. And um, Snowstorm, obviously, they're the enemy at that time. And the families took them in and housed them for the night and said, hey, look, you're not supposed to be here. We're not supposed to be housing you. Here's the outpost tomorrow morning. You need to go turn yourselves in. Um, there's a prisoner exchange kind of thing. We'll house you for the night, but the right thing needs to be done in the morning. Well, uh, so they leave the next morning, but it turns out they weren't British soldiers. They were um, Americans posing as British soldiers looking for loyalists. And so then they hauled the husbands to jail and took all their property and sent the wives off someplace else and put them on trial for aiding the enemy. And in that trial, they questioned them and said, you know, why did you give aid to the enemy? And their response was so simple and I think so accurate. They said, we gave them shelter not because they were British. We gave them shelter because they were men. And it's just that simple recalculation of what are the real priorities here? Um, yes, it is the enemy, but yes, it is a human being. What is it that accurately reflecting what Christ has for me to do would be the right thing to do in that circumstance? This, this is not easy stuff. Jesus taught stuff like this all the time, and the crowd said, forget that, and turned around and took off. And Jesus like, well, hang on, let me turn it down a couple notches, and you guys can come back. Um, I think there's a difference there um, often between what I, I consider a standing embrace and a chasing embrace. Jesus kind of draws a line, and when people leave, he doesn't go chasing back and say, Come back. No. He says, Look, here I am. This is what I have to offer you. Here's where the boundary is. Come unto me. And he asked the disciples that too at one point Do you want to leave too? And what do they say? No. Where else would we go? You alone have the words of life. And so it is a high stakes game. The cost of discipleship is high, the cost of non discipleship is even higher, but the cost of discipleship is high. It's a real thing, that there are real absolutes, that the things that God commands us are for us to actually do. And then this gets contentious even within the Christian community because if you read a book on modern Christian ethics, the format and the system there operates on this calculation of what are called graded moral absolutes. So there are things that if our um, actions are based off of the character of God and there are things that conflict, what then do we do? Do we lie to save our lives? Is the truth sacred? Is our life sacred? What do you do when you have two conflicting moral absolutes? And for the uh, more Anabaptist-oriented part of that, they would say, no, that difficulty does not negate sanctity, that I don't lie to preserve my life. By somebody else doing the wrong thing, that doesn't justify me doing the wrong thing. And most people say, that's ludicrous. You're an idiot. (laughs) Lie and save your life. But if we genuinely have an idea that our actions are based off of the character of who God is, then we obey God and we leave the consequences to him. And that is not a great long-term American dream stability scheme right there. Because God asks his people to do really weird things. That should terrify anybody who's considering becoming a Christian. Just flip through scripture sometime and look at what God has asked people to do. Couple that with what I think is the most terrifying element of Jesus' ministry is the super high expectation that he has for people to understand what it is that he's talking about and to do it. Jesus has high goals for us. And there's a, a wrestle there that I think is um, a struggle. Wanting to do the right thing it gets back to Paul and the Romans 7 sort of thing. I, I do what I don't want to do kind of in that longing and that wrestling there. And then how do we make sense of that as we think about salvation? And there's a a little passage here in Titus that I want to read to you that I think just brings so much of this together for me in a helpful way. Um, This is not, by any stretch of imagination, a works-based salvation sort of thing. This is a a simple obedience empowered by the Spirit of God that I'm talking about that is a byproduct of our salvation. And part of that is, I want to read to you here, uh, starting in verse 11 of Titus chapter 2. And here's a fascinating little concept that... Um, I don't know that we have a full understanding of what grace means from a biblical perspective. Grace kind of gets tossed out there as a bit of a flimsy word. In fact, the whole book of 1 Peter is, uses the grace the word grace all over the place. It's a letter written to strangers. He's like, hey, you don't belong here. People are passing through sojourners. As a call to holiness in the context, as a call to obedience and holiness in the context of suffering, and he says, and this is the grace of God. Now, when did you last sing a praise song about grace that included suffering, being a sojourner, and holiness? Um, There's a whole lot to what's going on here. And part of this shows up here in the teaching of Paul in verse 11 of Titus chapter 2. He says, for the grace of God that brings salvation. Sweet. We like saving grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Amen. That's a good, that is a good thing. But what does that grace do? For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Here's what it does. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. What? The grace that saves us? The grace that brings salvation teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Just reading what it says here to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things that you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority, and do not let anyone despise you. Chapter 3. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, To be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. How would you go through that passage and separate the action and the behavior from the grace of God? It's so intimately intertwined and entangled here, that there's a richness and a depth and a beauty to it that we can't just parse it out into simple, nice, neat categories and not allow them to touch each other. And so I think um, the simple idea that I'm leaving for us here tonight is the things that God asks us to do are not just random, not just willy-nilly, but they're a legitimate reflection of who he is, and he calls us to live in that way, and we recognize, I can't do that, and we cry out to him for help, and he says, it's okay, it's okay. I will fill you with my spirit. And it's the same gracious character of who I am that will also enable you to do these things. And so we can't get those things out of balance. We have to. We have to. As we often sing about, he saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Preach that. Share that with other people. That is good news right there. Not because of the righteous things we had done. What a breath of fresh air. The goodness, the mercy of God that he would justify us just because of his goodness and his mercy, independent of who we are. Hey, at one time, we two were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions. God took care of it, went the second mile, loved even that whole crew of us. And then the goodness that comes out of that, that God doesn't just save us and adopt us. Uh, Nobody who adopts somebody goes to the courthouse, and the adoption process is finalized, and then they leave the kid in the courthouse. Um, Legally, they're a son at that point. That's great. That is worth celebrating. Um, celebrate that. But then go out the door and go home. There's stuff for you to do. The rights of the son and the daughter of God are now available to you through the power of what it is that God is calling us to. And so this idea that God would teach us by his grace to say no to ungodliness, to live lives of self-control and uprightness in this uh, present age, that's a, a type of Christianity that turns heads when people say, what is wrong with that person? How is it that they were able to do that in that way? And I'm sure lots of you can tell lots of stories of people who um, lived in that way and in the split-second decision-making chose to do something a little bit different. When my grandpa was a little boy, they milked their cows at 5.30, and one morning uh, had to go on a vacation, so they started at 5, and they found their neighbor out in their barn shoveling corn (laughs) into a sack out of their grain bin. And my great-grandpa walked in, tipped his hat to him, said, Good morning kept on going and the guy quickly (laughs) grabbed his stuff and hightailed it out of there and my grandpa was so mad he's like dad I can catch that dude let me at him and his dad said oh well David that man's already received his punishment he has to sleep with a thief tonight so they're going on vacation and great grandpa took the key to his house over to that man and said we're going to be gone for the week would you watch over my property for me while I'm gone where does that come from that's, that is not the normal response when you find somebody stealing out of your business. Um, and that's not a statement about the greatness of anybody I know That's a statement of the goodness of God, of what God can do in somebody's life who is willing to say, you know what, I can sacrifice a little bit here for the restoration of relationship and the future of what is to come. And we can all tell stories of, like that, of just watching people who have forgiven heinous things, who haven't become bitter when they have every right to be, who have loved people, who have despised them in return. The transformative love of God is a real thing. Look at the knuckle-headed disciples that Jesus picked, and then look at what they were able to do in the world because the Spirit of God was working with them. They were ordinary, uneducated men, but the people took note that they had been with Jesus. Woe to us! if people ever think that we're great people because of our whatever it is that we do but praise be to god if people can look at our lives and say there's something different there categorically different because a powerful god works in and among and through those people i think that living a life or if we wanted a definition of what does it mean to glorify god i think glory and blame are sort of the same things in reverse when you blame somebody you say here's a mess whose fault is that who can we blame when we glorify God, we say, here's something wonderful. Whose fault is that? <laughs> In a good way. And so that's the way that I want to live my life. Um, humbly before God, recognizing the Lord has a lot of work to do on Nathan Rittenhouse. A lot of work to do on me. He's not done with any of us yet. But calling us and conforming us and growing us by his spirit and by the outpouring of his grace to conform us into the image of the Son, that we would be people who legitimately reflect the character and the nature of a good and gracious God. That is a joyful thing to be a part of, and it's a message of hope that the world desperately needs. Not that you can just slap a bumper sticker on it and make it okay, but deep life transformation, that we have a hope, a blessed assurance, that blessed hope that we were reading about right there is a reality for us both into eternity and starting even tonight in our lives as God continues to shape and form us in that way. So those are a few thoughts on... um, yeah, moral grounding. When somebody says, why do you behave the way that you do as a Christian? You say, well, it's because it's based off of the character and the nature of who God is. I can afford to act this way because I'm backed up by a God who shows me how to do it. And I know that in eternity, he can balance these things out and make it all right. And I've decided to give my life to him in a way that he can use it however he wants. Um, that's a good message. So thanks for uh, thinking along with me on that. We're going to flip it over now to you guys to ask me questions in response to that uh, I guess Eric will have a microphone and we'll um, do the same thing we sort of did last night as you have um, questions of clarification on things that I said and then we'll let it uh, spool off from there.
0: I need to ask you one question. All right. What's your opinion on turn off the TV and concentrate on what, or concentrate on you. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So part of it is a, um, I think one of the, I just, I have a whole lot of thoughts on that, but a a little sliver of that as it maybe pertains to some of what's going on is that it would be ridiculous for me to get up in the morning, check the weather in Northern California, see that it's raining, and then carry an umbrella out the door in West Virginia. Um, and something about television and the news seems to take what's happening in a remote part of the world and globalize it as a problem everywhere. And so something might be happening in another part of the world, and I say, oh, well, things are so tough where I am. You know, well, make hay while the sun shines where you are kind of thing. So I think part of it is, is refocusing back into the local community and saying, well, this is true there, and there are tra- trends and then things we have to be worried about and, and watching for, but I can't let my fear of missing out on what's happening globally actually calls me to miss out on what's happening right in my household and in my community, in my neighborhood, right around me. And so I think television, all forms of media have the ability to, to, to shift our focus away from the thing that's immediate. And Jesus did a really good job of that, of calling it back to the people who are right there in front of him and, and dealing with them. And so that's, a, a, a I a, a think, a thing for us to be intentional about, thinking of where are we being distracted here, Um, And where am I changing the behaviors in my life based off of something that actually aren't really impacting my life? And what are the opportunities that God has for me right here? So I think um, we need to keep in mind what reality actually looks like in our own town. And and we can be aware of of global events. But let's not forfeit the opportunities that God has for us here um, because we're worried about something that's happening someplace else. Great question. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, you were talking about the, how the goodness of God comes from his character and nature. And One of the things that we, we talk about here sometimes in Sunday school, it kind of comes up sometimes, is how does the nature that we see of God in the Old Testament, yeah. how does that, it's like we got to Jesus and, gee, oh, okay, we're not <laughs> supposed to kill our enemies. We're not, you know. Uh, do you see a continuity in that character? Coming from the Old Testament into the New, what does that look like? And how do we, how do we deal with what looks like a God who uh, you know, makes some pretty strong judgments <laughs> yeah, to, yeah. to what we see in Jesus? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. I think the, uh, the funniest way that that question was ever asked to me was somebody asked me if God got saved between the Old and the New Testament. <laughs> um, you know, can we have this angry, wrathful God? And then the hippie, mellow Jesus kind of got him to tone it down a little bit when we get to the New Testament. Um yeah, so the, the short answer there is it's fascinating me that um, as you read through the Old Testament, you have a God who, uh, you'd say, he appears to be pretty trigger happy. Like, don't touch this or you'll die. They touch it, they die. I mean, it's a pretty kind of uh, uh, situation, and, and so there's a big focus on his holiness, I and mean, we'll talk about this some tomorrow night when we talk about the justice and the righteousness and the mercy of God, but... Um, that, that factor of his holiness. So you have that, while at the same time having the odd experience of looking at Israel praising God for his steadfast love, his loving kindness, his uh, faithfulness, his mercy, his slow to anger, abounding in love. Those are the psalms and the songs that they sing about that God. Um, then you get to the New Testament. Jesus talks about hell more than he talks about heaven. People are like, oh, that's the guy <laughs> about love. You get to Revelation, Jesus comes back, blood to the depth of the horse's bridle kind of thing. You're like, well, that's a fascinating little thing to wrestle with. And so what I think actually is happening there, and you alluded to this, is that there is a if you read the Old Testament and you don't see the steadfast love and the mercy of God, you're not reading the Old Testament correctly. And if you read the New Testament and you don't see the holiness and the justice and the wrath of God, uh, you're probably skipping some parts in the New Testament too. So there is a continuity in who it is that God is, but there's a fundamental difference in the way in which God asks us to interact with other people. So Old Testament, Israel as the people of God, their sin in the camp hey, you guys, strap on your swords and clean this up. New Testament, there's still a God who's interested in holiness and justice, but he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God's going to provide the justice. And so his character is the same. The way in which he acts, asks us to interact with sin um, is a very different thing. Thank goodness <laughs> um, that I don't need to bear the burden of maintaining righteousness in the land with my sword. Um, and so there's a, there's a yeah continuity to his character and his nature. There is a difference of an application. And I think, um, largely speaking, we say it's a, it's a time of grace. There's a way in which um, the random example that pops into my mind that my mom asked me to never talk about in public um, <laughs> is that my dad was breaking this horse once. It's a long story why we had this psychotic horse. But... Um, so he was breaking this horse, and then the, for whatever reason, he thought the ultimate test of this horse's trust would he would lead it into our house. And um, so he came up the steps, and then a nice little clip-de-clop through the sitting room, into the dining room. And my mom was cleaning something, I think, like on the kitchen floor, something that had her head down, and looked up, and Dad was standing in the dining room with a horse, his head over his shoulder. Um, and she actually handled that really well. Um, she looked up, and in a very calm voice said, don't bring it through the kitchen. Its hooves will certainly dent the linoleum. And uh, dad backs the horse up, and they go out through the side door. And I remember being a little boy just waiting for, like, a china cupboard to go through the dining room walls or something. Like, it was, it was just ripe for a great story. Um, nothing dramatic happened. And one of the things, so the horse comes into the house. There's, a, there's an infringement. There's a boundary that's crossed there. A house is not a good place for a horse. I mean, just imagine your dining room with a horse in it. Um, that's a bad situation. It's, it's, not good for the, it's not good for the house. On the other hand, a house is not a good place for a horse. It goes both ways. When the boundary is crossed, there's the, the infraction and the violation of the thing that's transgressed upon, but it's also not good for the transgressor. A horse can't live in a house. That's a terrible spot for a horse. And so the same thing happens is that in God's graciousness and in his mercy in our time, we are able to cross boundaries and not die immediately for our sins It's the grace of God, like in 2 Peter 3, 8, when it says God's not slow in keeping his promises, he's waiting for more people to come to repentance. So he allows us to cross the line and not die and have the opportunity to repent and come back into order with him. And so one way to look at that, and we'll talk about this some more tomorrow, is that the delay of justice is necessary for the reality of forgiveness. God is a God of justice, and he expects, and he is holy, and that's the fundamental core part of who he is, But he does allow us to sin and not die instantly. That's not that sin isn't punished, but that he gives us the opportunity to repent and to come back into that. And so that's the transformation that I think you see in the way in which God interacts with humanity. Not a change in his character, but a way in which we're called to respond to that. Um, And that is a beautiful thing to live on this side of that. And there's also a sense when you look at the Old Testament that there's a a sense in which the the judgment is proportional to the amount of revelation. And so oftentimes when God whacks people for sin, it's like God is speaking to you on a mountain. It's not ambiguous about what God wants. There's a pillar of fire right there. Uh, You just walked through a sea. Um, It's pretty clear like, so there's a a sense in which the proximity of God's presence and the degree to which he's making his will known then is proportional to the judgment in in some degree in in that way too. So there's a little bit of a difference of the way in which God is making himself known and how that turns into the way in which we behave. Um, But there is a, a um, Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, nature to who God is. There's a whole other sermon in there somewhere. But it's an important question, and I think, um, well, I'll save some of that for tomorrow. But I'm going to make a note about it.
0: Okay, I have one. Oh, sorry. Earlier you talked about this idea of, of the reflex. Mm-hmm. And that so when something happens, that the first impulse would be to do that, which one ought to do, or what Christ would want us to do. Do you connect that with the command to be filled with the Holy Spirit? I mean, is that, is that how one is able to actually reflex rightly? Because it's not really... Us that's reflexing in our flesh—it's actually the spirit who has that level of control. Does that connect at all? Or
1: yeah, so it's—I think that's a good question. And one of the the great head scratchers is that one of the fruits of the spirit is self-control. Now, it would make more sense if one of the fruits of the spirit was spirit control. You know, isn't that a little bit odd? So why is one of the fruits of the spirit not spirit control? It's self-control. Uh, and so I think that points to it's not that. Being filled with the Spirit then makes us an automaton of God, that God downloads his software format into our hardware and then does it, but it's the Spirit of God working with who we really are. We're, we still have an identity. We're still ourselves. But being filled with the Spirit is, is different than being, um, yeah, overpowered by the Spirit in a way in which you're uh, remote in that way. So I think the best way to think of it is, is looking at that. That's the best we can, we can do with it, is that the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Um, And that it is the spirit of God who has worked in us to the degree that I think we recognize that our protection and our provision doesn't come from us but comes from God. And that's a core part of, um, that's a hard thing to resign yourself to, uh, really. Um, Maybe even especially for guys, but that's the the core of the Lord's prayer of give us this day our daily bread. That our provision comes from God and deliver us from evil. That our protection comes from God. um, And that we live a life of... um, I think the people that I am the most impressed by in life are um, really super competent people in a lot of categories in their business and their, um, yeah, what, I mean, I have some men in my life that I just really admire that, like, built their house of their own. And they did, like, all, you know, the, the capable of carrying their own burden sort of thing, but I've also seen them drop their knees and weep before God and say, I don't know how to solve this. And so there's a sense there, I think, in recognizing our own limitations of what are the things that God has asked me to do and I as a human can handle, and then what are the things that are above and beyond me? <laughs> I'm at the end of this one, Lord. Uh, I can't fix this. Um, and that's when being filled with the Spirit, um, God can do miraculous things for us. So I think, I think you're absolutely right that that's the right language to see that the uh, self-control, that the ability to live a life of holiness um, is a gift of God from the Spirit. Um, and so that's not to say that we don't uh, refer to people as saints, I think. You know Paul does that, obviously, of saying that they, they live holy lives. Um, and there are, it's okay, I think. You know The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, and he says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. That, there's an important part of that. Nobody is self-righteous on that hand. But on the other hand, you know faithful people of God that you would say are striving to live. It's a trajectory. It's a decision uh, to grow in a direction. Um, and it's by the Spirit of God that, uh, that, in, that is enabled Um, And I think, uh, yeah, we want to think a little bit more on Wednesday night about spiritual disciplines and what does that mean to tune ourselves to uh, sing God's praise and to be in step with his spirit in a way that that is not even just necessarily always a reflex, but also something that God can say, hey, I have something for you to do today um, and mobilize us. He's looking for people who are ready to respond um, to to his spirit, not their impulses. and, and watching people do that well has been a powerful witness for me and a direction that I that I hope to grow in. The um, more technical phrase of that, there's a guy named um, Stuart Murray, and he, he wrote about a biblical interpretation in the Anabaptist tradition, and he has a line in there that he calls... Uh, pneumatic exegesis So if you think about pneumatic, like a pneumatic tire It's filled with air, it's filled with the Air and spirit are the same word uh, Pneuma, so you're, you have the spirit In your tire, I guess um, but He talks about pneumatic exegesis Of living that life of a spirit-filled Interpretation of scripture And walking in step with the spirit of God Has been a key part of uh, Almost a charismatic part Of the traditional Anabaptist experience That we don't talk about as much as just The reality of the Holy Spirit's work in our world and in our life. Um, and that's, a, I, th- I think it's, a um, as Steve Dinneman said, there's a spiritual poverty there when we almost make the entirety of who God is about the incarnate person of Jesus and forget the full box of tools. It's kind of a crass way to talk about God, but the, full, the fullness of what's available to us, we're not tapping into the resources that we have there um, to do that. So it's a good thing, yeah, to be challenged on. Here in the front.
2: I'll try to form my question well. Um, So as you've talked, there's been a lot of emphasis on almost like the innate sinfulness of us as humans, right? That like almost, there's almost a sense, and we hear it a lot in Christianity, that we're almost incapable of good on our own um, and that it's all jesus working through us and for me the idea started to fall apart a little bit when i started to realize that in order to convince people they needed jesus i had to convince them they were terrible first right and i really hated like when you meet somebody and you're thinking how can i convince this person that they need jesus it's to tell them you know what you're screwed up. And so I, for me, it transformed into like, how can I see Christ in this person and almost call that forward and, and changing the complete way that I view a human being standing for me instead of trying to identify their sinfulness, trying to identify their Christlikeness and saying, you know what? You know, you know how it feels when you, I often think of kids and I think, you know how it feels when you like share with your sister and how, how that can feel really good when it makes her happy? That's Jesus working in your life and imagine if you were like that more often wouldn't that be wonderful you know like and and calling out people's christ-likeness rather than making them feel terrible about themselves so that they will so that they will turn to jesus like i and i i guess how much where is the balance there between calling out the imago dei the like image of God in people and saying, you know what, you, you are good because you're the image of God, but then also being aware of our need for him and our sinfulness, What's the balance there. I feel like there has to be a balance. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, and, and that means if there's a balance, then it means those things aren't mutually exclusive. Um, and last night we talked a little bit about that. Like, here's a Christian position. Here's a non-Christian position. Is it a headbutting thing or is there a sense in which Jesus often just taunts and says, well, what if your view is too low? What if there's more? What if there's a bigger picture here? Um, I think that, and again, this is where you get in all kinds of different trouble theologically with different people, but it does seem to me that there are people who are not Christians that live good lives. We have to agree with that. There are atheists that live more moral lives than a lot of people who claim to follow Christ. That's an empirical fact. The difference there is, is that you can, you can live a moral life without being a Christian. I don't know that that moral life makes sense. It's what Francis Schaeffer called stealing cookies from the Christian cookie jar, um, and actually in more modern philosophers like John Gray, an atheist philosopher who says, you know what, we're not really living consistent atheistic ethics here. We're kind of borrowing our ethics from Christians and then saying, hey, we're pretty good people. Um, so you can do it. It's whether or not there's a, a fundamental continuity between that. Oftentimes I think, yeah, uh, very rarely do I feel the need to inform somebody of where they fall short of what it is that Christ calls them to. We're pretty good at figuring that out for ourselves on that. And so I think there's a, a sense in which, yeah, we are offering a, a picture and a vision and a window into something that is higher and beyond that. Um, there's a, a, a two-part sense there of is it just that we're, we're so messed up that we can't do anything, or did God create us to be the type of creatures who can naturally respond to beauty? And those are two very different things. And so I think Jesus' invitations are legitimate invitations of saying, um, here's the and you have the ability to respond to this and recognize this is good and beautiful. And actually that's where he really comes down hard on the Pharisees is like when he does something good and they're like, oh, it's by the prince of demons that he did that. And he's like, if you can't sort out here what's good and bad, that's the <laughs> sin against the Holy Spirit, like to call that which is good. Like, why can't you figure that out? That's a big question that Jesus has for them. Um, so, yeah, the the the... the the functional brokenness of humanity is not something that, um, yeah, and, and part of that's relational, too, of people that you know and you know where they're at at, at different times and different places. And so there's a sense in which we're, we're doing both of those. We're realistic, um, usually just practically speaking, and my own um, interaction with people. It's easier for me to emphasize my own shortcomings than to point that out <laughs> in somebody else. And so it's an invitation to, it's not like, da-da-da-da, it's like, it's like Let's walk this way together kind of thing, like we're both in this. And that's, um, my mom often uh, uses the phrase, the Lord has a lot of work to do on us all when she's working with somebody. I think that's just such a helpful thing because it recognizes that God has work to do on us, and he does do the work, but he has work to do on all of us at the same time. And so we're putting ourselves, I think, beside that person as we're walking with them toward the fullness of what Christ calls for us. Um, There's certainly, um, if you want to feel spiritual, don't get close to Jesus. Uh, because it's as we come closer to Jesus, we're like, oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not you. Um, and so there's a sense in which I think that has been, and that's the trajectory that Jesus used also. There was, like, when people thought they were righteous, that's when he went for the jugular. Um, but when people were broken and hurting, he didn't have to show up and be like, oh, let me kick you while you're down. Um, it was a very compassionate, come along and look at the world in this way. And so I think that, that's the thing that Makes those types of difficult those situations feel difficult to us if we feel like we're morally judging that person and saying, well, now that I know Jesus, I'm superior to you in such a way that I can condemn and critique your life. Well, you're not called to be their savior. <laughs> you're called to follow your your savior and his example of dealing with brokenness is, is to um, serve, offer hospitality, and to comfort the broken and invite them along into the fullness of what God had for them. So, yeah, like you said, I think it's not mutually exclusive. We can identify, and affirm, and call things what they are while at the same time. Um, not being on a moral high horse there and um, inviting them into a fuller and richer life. So, yeah, I think your your hunch there is exactly in the Christ-like direction.
0: Do I have one more? Then we're going to have a closing song. Anybody else? In the back. Here. Okay.
1: This may just feed into Wednesday. Night. Talked about, we're going to talk about spiritual disciplines, but kind of this... Uh, the idea of that, or again, the reflex yeah. of, like, how do you not respond in self-defense but in love? And 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 yeah. how, like, are there ways that we practice <clears throat> like there's, okay, self-control is a spiritual, as a spirit, it 's fruit of the spirit. Mm-hmm. But do we also practice that physically? I mean, self-control, you work at it. Like, yeah. I don't know, can you speak to that tension? Yeah, know. that's that's a great question. Um, the, uh, <laughs> Sort of the, uh, to quote my grandpa again on this, one of his questions he always ponders is, is there such a thing as an overweight Pentecostal? Um, (laughs) If self-control is the fruit of the spirit? Um, Because it points to that tension that our physical bodies are a big part of our training for all things. Um, And I think it is, maybe it's kind of that karate kid imagery of wax on, wax off, right? He's practicing emotion in one way, but that motion also is really helpful in other things that there are disciplines that God has given for us to practice uh, self-control. Fasting would be one of those and different other uh, rhythms and routines of, of the, the ability that we have for self-control in one category then does translate over into other categories and areas of interest into our life. And so, um, yes, <laughs> to your question of, I think there are, are real things. Again, it's not a legalism, it's not a work-based. There's a, um, oh man, Goofy stuff pops into my head during Q&A. Has anybody here ever seen the movie Madagascar? All the goofy little animals, right? There's the, is it the first one or the second one where there's King Jul- the giraffe is in the hole trying to die? You know that one? And he's, this is the first one. Okay, we got some real <laughs> cinema buffs here. And the, and the lemur king, King Julian, shows up and he says, you know, what would you want to do? And he said, I would love to become a professional whistler. And he says, I'm pretty amazing at it now, but I want to get like even better. Um, and of course, he's terrible at it. But I think there's a, a sense in which all of us are always trying to grow in that direction of um, even when God has worked a good thing in us, we always have a desire to be even pretty amazing at it now, but I want to be like even better. Um, we recognize we fall short, but there's always a desire to grow in that. And so there are things, um, if I want to get better at running, I can get a coach. If I want to get better at beekeeping, I can get a mentor. If I want to get better at, um, and we know how that works, business, we can get a life coach, we can... Um, and just think, you know, the church has phenomenal resources for us of saying, you know, here's an area of my life. And that's actually one of the things that God's uh, Jesus said, when I send the spirit, he'll return, he will convict. And so I think that's a, a thing that is helpful is just to kind of put yourself in the posture of saying, God, what are the where do I have a nutrient imbalance in my life um, that I'm missing out on the full vitamin package of what it is that you have for me? Um, and it's not that this is a mechanical kind of thing, but. We have thousands of years of church history of thoughtful people saying, you know what, when this is going on in your life, here's some practical things and practices that you can pick up that would uh, help you fine-tune those muscles um, so that you can grow uh, more faithfully as a disciple of Jesus. Um, So it's something that Jesus practiced, uh, and that probably, if we're going to talk about our lives reflecting uh, and the character of God being made known through Jesus, and Jesus being our role model and example, then seeing the things that Jesus did even filled completely with the Holy Spirit from his baptism, still did in order to uh, model those and to experience communion with God. Um, It kind of goes back to that funnel analogy, right? Of The deeper you get into it, the more beautiful and the bigger it gets. You're never going to get to the end of it. Be like, well, I've mastered that now. Um, Moving on. Uh, At some point, God will bring that to completion and finality, but uh, the Lord has a lot of work to do on us all but I think that people who are striving to please Him because of His goodness to us as a genuine response to the understanding of what it is that He's done for us, that's a, that's a contagious Christianity. When you're not on a moral high horse, you're at the mercy of a good God, and you know that what you have, all your good gifts come down from your Father in Heaven. That makes you compassionate. Um, that makes you able to share. Um, even compassion in itself, itself is a fascinating thing. To, to have compassion, you have to make a moral judgment. You have to say, that situation is wrong. And in fact, it's so wrong that I'm going to do something about it. You have an idea of that's, that's bad. And so the, the compassion that Jesus has is because of that, that brokenness that he sees that people don't even necessarily see when he's coming to Jerusalem. They're about to kill him thinking that they're doing the right thing on God's behalf and he doesn't get angry. He's not scared, he weeps. And he's like, ah, oh, Jerusalem, if only you knew this day the thing that made for peace. Like his heart is broken for the people who are so sure they're doing God's will, um, but he doesn't get defensive. Uh, He doesn't get angry about it. Um, He laments what it is that they're missing. And so I think God has has a lot for each of us. And you think that too, or you want to come tonight to continue to lean in and to press into and see what it is that God is inviting you to do. And for me, I'm not good enough to do this on my own. I need the spirit of God, but you know what? I'm also, I deeply need Christian community around me to help me figure this out. Um, and so it's a huge blessing for me, and it's it's great to see that you guys have each other here too. Um, just think about that for a, a second. Let's, or there are more than that, but let's say there are 50 people here who have been studying Scripture for 20 years. There's way more than that. That's a thousand years of biblical knowledge sitting right here in this room. You ever think about just the resources of a of a community and a small church of people who like each other? That's a, a phenomenal thing to to sit in and to marinate in, um, and resources that are available to us. So. Yeah, anyway, let's, let's uh, yeah, Who's, are you guys the closing song to? Let's do that, and let's worship a God who makes these things uh, as great as they really are.